So they, they told me last week that I was preaching so hard a button came undone in my shirt. Uh, I found that out after the sermon was over. But, uh, you know, that's just when you're bringing the heat, brother. Your buttons just can't hold it. So I'm going to try to tone it down a little bit this morning so that my buttons stay buttoned. We'll see how that works. But today I want to talk to you about something that I think is going to be exceptionally important for every single person in this room. I want to talk, I want to teach you about faith. Because every single one of you who's here this morning or watching online, every one of you is here because of faith. For the majority of you, it's because because of your faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You want to come worship him and learn more about him. That's what draws you in to, to tune in online. That's what draws you in to come gather with the church because of your faith in Jesus. Praise God. But I know there are some of you in the room. I know there are some of you listening online. And the reason why you're here is because you want to know if Jesus is worth putting your faith in. You're, you're curious. You're intrigued. You're, just, you're asking questions. And my prayer is that you'll find out Today, Jesus is worth having your faith. But I'm, I'm so grateful that you chose to be a part of this. I'm so grateful you're here this morning because I believe Jesus can move in you. But then there's a third group of you. You're here because somebody dragged you here against your will because they have faith that you being here might actually change you. And praise God for their faith. So whether you're here against your will or not, your faith or someone else's faith, God can do something in your life simply because you're going to listen to the word of God. But every single one of us is here because of faith. But the thing about faith is faith is one of those things that you know, but you don't know. Like you, you know what faith is, but you don't really know what faith is. Faith is a thing that we define often by what we cognitively believe in, what we say. Sometimes we define it by how we feel, but faith at its core is an action. It's not just a feeling or a thought. It, it's something you do, not just something you believe with your mind. Probably a perfect example of this would be prayer. So I need a little audience participation here in the room. How many of you believe that there is great power in prayer? Raise your hand if you believe there is great power in prayer. Okay. Praise the Lord. I was worried there would be like a few of you. <laughs> we in trouble if that's the case. But about 98% of you raised your hand. You believe there is great power in prayer. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question, but listen to me. I don't want you to raise your hand on this next one. I, I'm not, I don't want to embarrass anybody, and I don't want to have to raise my hand. But here's my next question. How many of you, when something goes wrong, your first instinct is to try to solve it first, and if it doesn't work, then you pray? Like, okay, I'm having an issue at work, so I know I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get there earlier. I'm going to make this happen. I got an issue with my marriage. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to listen a little bit better. We're going to go to counseling. We're going to solve this thing all right, I got this rebellious kid. All right, I'm going to crack down a little bit harder. I'm going to make sure I, I teach. I'm going to love him a little more. I'm going, to, I'm going to solve it. And if that doesn't work, then I'll turn to prayer. But if we believe that there is great power in prayer, why isn't our first instinct to fall on the ground to begin to pray? Now, I know there are a few of you that actually do that. And what you're proving when you do that is you actually believe you have faith in prayer. Because remember, faith is action. It's not just what you say you believe. It's not even how you feel about what you believe. It's what you do. And I think so many of us prove we don't really have all that much faith in prayer. Otherwise, we would turn to it first. Faith is proven by what you do. Or, or maybe another example of this, and I, I prayed about this. Should I, should I say this or should I not? Because it can come off very condemning. And just know from the beginning, I, I don't want this to be condemning. It's just help you understand prayer. 
about 98% of you raised your hand, you believe there's great power in prayer. About 15% of you will show back up on Wednesday night to pray. Now, I, I, know, I know there are all kinds of reasons why somebody may not come on a Wednesday night. There could be scheduling conflicts, there'll be sick children, a lot of things going on in life. But for the majority, what it means isn't I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe you genuinely believe in the power of prayer. But you're not putting faith into action. Because if you really believed it, like to the point where you're willing to show it, you would, you'd be drawn to any place where you could cry out to God in prayer because you know that would be the most important thing you could be doing. There's great power in prayer. So your faith in prayer is shown not by what you say, not even by what you feel, but by what you do. Now, this, this sermon isn't about prayer. This sermon is about faith. And the reason I want you to hear that is because faith is always seen by action. Any area where you say you have faith in God, and I believe many of you in this room do, it is always shown by action. That this is so central that right before the nation of Israel was about to be freed from slavery to go into the promised land, God had to tell them, before you go, before you leave slavery, I want you to understand what faith is because you cannot be my people unless you understand faith. That's what Exodus chapter 12 was all about. I want you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. And in this beautiful passage of scripture, we're going we're gonna to learn what faith really is through some symbols he's going to give us. Now, I know every single Sunday we have guests that are tuning in for the first time, joining us for the first time. And so I, what we're doing right now is we're, I'm going to catch you up. We're going through the book of Exodus. We started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, and we are slowly and meticulously working our way through the book of Exodus. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 12. We're almost at the point that the majority of people are familiar with the, the crossing of the Red Sea. That's just in a few weeks. But right now, we've seen nine plagues out of 10 take place. The 10th plague has been warned, the, the death of the firstborn. And now it's just about the moment where they're going to leave. And God says, before you go, I got to teach you something. And that's where you learn about the Passover. So it's chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall, take, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that, that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, we're going to stop at verse 13. So many of you are familiar with this. If any of you have, have done the, the Passover Seder with uh, Rick Weintraub, then you, you understand a whole lot about this. He explains the symbolism of it. We actually go through it on video or in person pretty much every Thursday before Easter Sunday. 
to teach these truths, the, the Passover Seder meal. And there's a lot of symbolism in this and what you just read, but there are four massive symbols in it that teach us about faith. And I want you to understand these four symbols because they show you what your faith is supposed to look like. It's the calendar, it's the bitter herbs, it's the unleavened bread, and then it's the lamb. Those are the four symbols. I want to walk you through them one by one so you understand what your faith is supposed to look like. So I'm going to go to the first symbol, the symbol of the calendar. If you look at verse 2, it says that this month now shall be the beginning of months for you. Now, you may not know what that means, but what he's doing is he's basically saying, this is now your January. It doesn't matter what the calendar used to be. This is now your January. So just imagine that for a moment. So it's September 25th. Imagine today, God says, all right, all right, time out. This is now January. Your whole month changes. This is now the first month for you. This is a cataclysmic shift for the Israelites. It doesn't matter what the Egyptians said the calendar was going to be. It doesn't matter what you had before. This is now your January. And the reason why he was doing that is because he was saying, this is symbolic. Today and forward, everything is brand spanking new. Whoever you used to be, whatever used to happen to you doesn't matter anymore. All of it's washed away. You used to be slaves. You are no longer slaves. You get a brand new identity today. You get a fresh start today. A journey of all the new begins today. This is now your first month. Let me tell you why that symbol matters. I'm certain of one thing in a room this size with this many hundreds of people, and then the additional hundreds watching online, I'm, I'm sure of one thing. There are some of you hearing me speak today and you desperately need a fresh start. You are so sick and tired of your life, all the struggles, all the failures, all the brokenness, all the past, and you just want a clean break you do realize that still since the pandemic, the, the suicide rate is so high and those who are contemplating suicide is so high because of the, men the mental instability created by so much disharmony and brokenness in our world. There are many of you in this room right now watching online, you're struggling with this and you don't know why. You feel like you're all alone. And the truth is there are so many who are struggling with this going, I, I don't even know whether it's worth living anymore. But let me tell you, you don't need to take your life. What you need is a fresh start. Just to flush all that around and say, I need a new beginning. I need a new identity. I need a new future. And God says, you can have it. Today can be the beginning of your life. And everything in the future is brand spanking new. Some of you desperately need that. And he says, I'm going to give you three more symbols to teach you how. To show you how faith in the bitter herbs, faith in the unleavened bread, faith in the lamb will get you to a place where all things become new. So I want to talk real briefly about the bitter herbs. So it says in verse 8, you shall eat the meat of the lamb. You shall eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. So the bitter herbs, it, it's to remind you of slavery in Egypt. Every single Seder meal, when, when Rick Weintraub is leading through that, and you get this, you get the horseradish, and, and it, you eat a bite of it, it just pops you. It's bitter. And the, the Jewish people, oftentimes when they do a Seder meal, they'll have horseradish, they'll have parsley, and they'll have endive. All of them intended to pop you, to make it hurt, to feel the bitterness of those herbs. And, and Rick will say, listen, when you eat these, it's, reminding, it's to remind the Jewish people of the bitterness of their slavery. Which always struck me, why do they need to be reminded of the bitterness of their slavery? It, it doesn't say remind them of their slavery. It says remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. And there's a side where I'm going, why do you need to be reminded of the bitterness of slavery? Just being reminded of slavery is bitter enough, right? I mean, like, surely I didn't forget until I read my Old Testament 
And I realized how often the nation of Israel forgot the bitterness of their slavery. You, you travel around with them in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go reread those books and see how many times the nation of Israel said, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. Because at least there we had food and, and at least there we had a home to live in. We weren't wandering around eating all this quail and manna. Oh, that we could go back completely forgetting all the bitterness of their slavery that made them cry out, oh God, help us. And it's interesting. Human nature is such that we forget the bitterness of our brokenness so quickly. But until we grow bitter with the broken state we're in, we'll never long for change. Probably the, the clearest way many of us recognize something like that is with our own weight. There are some of you, you're like me. I'm, I'm a yo-yo person up and down, up and down, up and down. I've been that way. I was a chubby kid, always struggled with weight. I look at a Twinkie, I gain two pounds. It's just, it's just on me all the time. I work out harder than anybody. I eat better than anybody. And I, I'm half as in shape as the people in this room. It's just the way it is for me. Always been that way. And, and there was about two years ago, I was just slowly doing the creep about a pound a month over a couple of years, didn't even realize. It. And I looked up and I was over 20 pounds heavier than I was a couple of years before. But it was so slow, I, I didn't really notice it. I mean, I knew my belt fit a little tighter. I knew my clothes weren't just quite right. But I just kept eating my Twinkies, man. I'm just enjoying life. Until one day, I watched a video of me preaching. And I said, is that what I look like? Holy cajoles. And in that moment, my weight became bitter to me. And I said, this shall not stand. And from that moment, I said, baby, I'm changing my diet. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to start running, start training for a marathon. I'm going to, I'm going to get in shape. This, this is not okay. It was only when it was not okay that I began to change. When I grew bitter with my broken state and broken body where I didn't want to have diabetes. I didn't want to have issues. I wanted to be in shape. That's when I started to make a change. You have to grow bitter before you're ever going to make a change. And let me tell you why that matters. Until you grow bitter with your broken state, you will never be ready for God to change you. And let me go ahead and tell you, you are broken, just like me. We are born slaves. And it might not be a physical slavery that we would see, but it is a spiritual slavery. The word of God is clear. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are slaves to sin. And what does that mean? It means that we are driven around by our selfish passions, our lusts, our cravings, the things that we want to have for ourselves. We are driven, owned by them. This is why we keep hurting ourselves and everyone else around us. It's inexplicable. It, we keep hurting every relationship. Our, our children are hurt by our sin. Our, our spouse is hurt by our sin. Every relation, our job is hurt. Our finances are hurt. Our health is hurt by our sin. We're slaves to these cravings. We don't know why we keep going back to porn. We don't know why we keep going back to another drink and another drink. We don't know why we keep spending money that we don't have. We don't know why we keep doing this because we're slaves to these cravings inside of us. We're slaves. But the truth is we can acclimate to that and go, this is just who I am. You know, and I'm just always going to be the angry type that explodes at people. Nothing I can do about it. I'm just always going to struggle with pornography. There's just nothing I can do about it. Look, I'm just naturally addictive by nature. I'm always going to struggle with alcohol. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm always going to fill in the blank. And we acclimate to our slavery and we're no longer bitter with it. And what I've been praying over you guys is that today would be the day that you say, no more. This is not okay. This life I've been living, the people I've been hurting, the way I've been self-destructing, it's not okay with me. 
I want you to grow bitter with your broken state. Because when you grow bitter with who you are, that's when faith begins to kick in to say, I think there can be something new. I don't want to be where I used to be. I want to be new. It creates a longing in, for, in you for change. That's what the bitter herbs are supposed to remind you. Be bitter about your brokenness. But the moment you are, that'll lead you to the next domino that needs to fall, the unleavened bread. He says, you're going to eat bitter herbs and you're going to eat unleavened bread. Now, the unleavened bread has a lot of symbolism to it, but the most important thing you understand is how important it was to God. In fact, it is so important, he starts a seven-day festival about the unleavened bread. I want you to read about it in verses 14 through 20. We're going to keep on tracking along in the passage. Verse 14. It says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly, and no work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you or by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, in all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay, seven verses where he's beating that drum again and again. Do not eat leavened bread. J just in case you don't know what leavened bread is and unleavened bread is, leavened bread is bread that has yeast in it that has risen. So when you eat a normal loaf of bread, what you would do is you would get some flour, you would get some yeast, you get some water, some salt, you mix it all together, and then you let it rise. Then you punch it down, and then you let it rise again, and then you bake it. And then it comes out all nice and fluffy, little wonder bread you get to eat if you do it right. But what he was saying in that moment is, I don't want you to let your bread rise. Don't put any yeast in it. And the reason why is because they didn't have time to let it rise. They were supposed to eat it quickly. He's saying, guys, listen, you don't have time to let it rise, punch it down, let it rise and make it all soft and fluffy. You get some flour, you get some water, you get some salt, you throw it together, you throw it in your oven, you cook it fast and you get ready to eat it because you're about to leave. Now, there's a whole lot of symbolism in the festival of unleavened bread. I'm going to get to that in two weeks because chapter 13 will pick this theme up again. But the most important thing you understand right now is the idea of haste. Do not wait. Cook your bread quickly because you got to go. In fact, he actually clarifies this really beautifully in verse 11. I want you to go back to verse 11. I want you to reread that verse. Listen to the way they were supposed to eat the Seder meal, the, the haste with which they eat it. Verse 11. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Th this was the most unusual way you could ever eat a meal. I mean, think about it for a moment. You got sandals on your feet. Now, if you know anything about this particular area of the world, they never wore their sandals inside their homes. It was considered offensive to do that. They're, they're an Asian culture. So you take your sandals off. Usually you would wash your feet and you would walk into a house. You wouldn't wear your sandals on inside. And even more offensive than wearing sandals inside a house is eating a meal with sandals on. That was a huge no-no in that culture. And he says, I want you to eat your meal with your sandals on your feet. And then he says, I want you to have your belt on. 
Now, most of us eat our meal with our belt on unless it's Thanksgiving and we want to open it up, you know, for the expansion. But for the, other than that, we wear a belt, but that's not, that's not, it wasn't like a, an accessory. When it says with your, with your belt fastened, they wore long robes and it meant you were supposed to gird up, hike up your robe so that your legs could move freely and you would tie a belt to keep the robe up so you could tuck the robe in. It was meant to let you leave quickly so you could run, you could, you could move quickly. That's why it had a staff in the hand. Now imagine for a moment, you got your plate right here with your lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread. You got sandals on, you got your robe hiked up, you got your staff and you're trying to eat the meal. That's a weird way to eat. It'd be like today, if you're standing in your living room with your Chick-fil-A up in one hand and you got your backpack and your rolling suitcase in the other eating your meal. That's, that's unusual. The way you eat a meal like that is only when you're in the airport. Like when you're in the airport, that's when you got your backpack on, you're rolling suitcase, you're eating your meal real quickly, and then you are getting on the airplane because you're about to take a journey. This is exactly what he's trying to teach them with the way they eat their unleavened bread in haste, with their sandals on, their robe girded in their belt and their staff in their hand. He's saying, I want you to eat this meal ready. You ain't got no time to let your bread rise because at any moment I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna free you from your slavery. You be ready, be expectant. I want you to eat with this on your toes, ready. Okay, God, when are you coming? When are you coming? When are you coming? Let me tell you why that symbol matters. Our faith drives us to believe that at any moment, God could come in and radically change our future. That we should come into his presence with our sandals on our feet, our robe girded up in our belt, our staff in our hand and say, I'm ready for wherever you want to take me, God, because I believe that today you're going to move and I'm ready for it. I gotta be honest with you. I think one of the worst things we do week after week after week is we come into the presence of Almighty God and we don't expect anything to happen. There is no time in the Bible where you see anybody meeting with Almighty God and walking away the same. Go look at Moses. When he met with Almighty God, he walked out, his face was, was glowing so bright they had to put a veil over his face because people were freaking out. You got Isaiah, he meets with God and what he does, he covers his mouth and says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. You see Job, he meets God face to face and Job says, I, I, I repent in dust and ashes because I only heard about you now, I've seen you. And anybody in the Bible who met with God walked away changed. And yet we come week after week after week believing that we're in here to meet with Almighty God but not expecting a change at all. We come in here, we're gonna sing our songs, might give an offering, might listen to a message, might take the Lord's Supper at the end, and we're gonna go right back into our normal lives. We should never expect to come into the presence of Almighty God and leave the same. We should come ready saying, God, today's the day. I'm coming into your house, God. If I meet you face to face, I'm gonna change. What do you wanna do? I'm ready. God, whatever you wanna call me to, I'm ready. He wants us to be expectant to meet with him. Faith requires that we come expectant to meet with him. Remember, faith is an action. It's not just what you say, and that action is a readiness, I'm ready. You tell me what you want me to do, God, I'm gonna do it. You tell me where to go, and I'm gonna go, I'm ready. God is saying, today I want you to be expectant. And if you are, then you can move to the third symbol. So now you're, you're ready for a new beginning, you're bitter about your sins, you've come in with your sandals on your feet, your, your staff in your hand, your belt around your way, you're ready for where God's gonna take you. Then he says, if you're, if you're at this point now, you can move to the third symbol, the symbol of the lamb. And Moses tells the people of God what they need to do in verses 21 to verse 27. Let's read that. 
It says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So he says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Get a lamb, slay it, take his blood, paint your doorpost with it, your lintel with it, and then you go inside your house and you wait. Look, guys, this was was completely ludicrous to them to do. They had no idea why God was asking them to do it. In fact, it was so confusing that all the future generations, the kids would say, now, why are we doing this again? Why why do we do this service? Why do we kill a lamb? And, And think about some of the oddities of this. He says, back in the very beginning of chapter 12, he said, I want you on the 10th day of the month to go get a lamb, bring it with you, and then slay it on the 14th day. That means for four days, that cute, fluffy, one-year-old lamb is living with you. Kids all feeding it, playing with it, getting to know the lamb. And then what happens on the 14th day? Mean old daddy takes it out back and slits his throat. Blood getting all over the place. And all the kids are going, what are you doing, daddy? He says, well, I'm getting a hyssop branch and I'm dipping it in the blood and I'm painting the doorpost of my house with it. And the kid says, why are you doing that? And the daddy says, I don't know why. Because God said so, I guess. I don't know why. Now, here's what you got to understand. We, we have so much more knowledge than they did back then. We, we, we know about the sacrificial system, but they had no idea. That doesn't come until later in the book of Exodus. And then the book of Leviticus, where he really details out the sacrificial system about slaughtering bulls and goats and lambs and putting their blood on the altar. And so we, we begin to develop a deeper theology because we know the rest of the story. And then we go all the way to the New Testament. We know about Jesus shedding his blood. We know all this stuff. So we understand that they didn't have any concept of any of that. All they know is God is saying, go kill that fluffy animal, get his blood, paint your house with it, and then go inside and just wait. This meant that it was blind faith for them. I got no idea why I'm doing this. I'm going to obey surely because you told me to do it. Remember, faith is about action. Not what you say, not what you feel, but by what you do. Let me tell you, their faith was about to be tested that night. What you hear later on, we're not going to read it, but in verse 30, it says that a great cry arose in all of Egypt as the Egyptians began to discover that their firstborn was dead. So the destroyer angel is passing through the land of Egypt. Now, it doesn't tell us. I don't know if the destroyer angel made a noise when he came into the house. I don't know if the firstborn, when he died, if he made a, a noise at all. I just know that they began to discover their firstborn was dead. Back then, oftentimes the children slept in the same bed with the parents. And so whatever it was, the parents would wake up with a start and go over and recognize that their firstborn was not breathing. Their firstborn was dead. And the moment they discovered their firstborn was dead, they began to scream, uncontrollably scream, to the point where this great cry is erupting all over the land of Egypt. And here are the Israelites sitting in the land of Goshen, inside their homes with their firstborn, and they can actually hear the screams getting closer and louder and closer and louder. And in that moment, they have a decision to make. 
Am I going to stay right here and trust in the blood of the lamb that's on the doorpost? Or am I going to do something about this? Now, I know if you're a parent, you'll understand what I'm about to say. Every fiber of your being as a parent would say, I got to get up and do something about this. I'm not just going to sit around and wait for my child to die like those children did. All I got is some blood on my doorpost. How's that going to do any good? And every fiber of your being would want to get your child and just start running. If you hear cries on that side, you're going to run that way because you're going to try to outrun the destroyer angel. You're not just going to wait for your child to die. But it would require incredible faith just to sit there as the cries got closer and closer and to trust that the blood of that lamb that is on the doorpost of the house will be enough. And for whatever reason, I can't even explain it, they completely trusted in the blood of that lamb. Look at verse 28 as we finish up the passage this morning. It says, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Let me tell you about the Israelites. They were contentious, grumbly, disobedient people. But in this particular area, they obeyed. I don't know why they did, but they did. They trusted in the blood of that lamb that was on the doorpost and lintel of their house, and they stayed inside. And the screams are getting closer and closer, and they're just praying, oh God, let the blood work. Oh God, let the blood work. Oh God, let the blood work. And I can just imagine, I don't know if it went this way, but I can imagine they're just, they're holding their firstborn, kind of rocking back and forth in the living room, just praying that their firstborn is going to live, that nothing's going to happen. And I can imagine screams all around. They're just exhausted. They fall over asleep. And they wake up the next morning and the mother, first thing she does is shake the firstborn. And then he moves and he stirs and he gets up and she realizes he's alive. The blood worked. He's alive. And every single person in that home knew there was power in that blood because there was life. Listen, if you don't know this, this story is just a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There's a a man named John the Baptist. He was actually Jesus' cousin. He was the forerunner for Jesus. And when he saw Jesus come up, he said, everybody stop. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Here's the true Lamb of God, the unblemished, sinless, perfect Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world. And on the same night when the Passover lambs were slaughtered in preparation for Passover, Jesus Christ was slaughtered on the cross. And he became the perfect lamb of God whose blood saves. And the reason you know his blood has power is because three days later there was life. You always know blood has power when there's life. Now, no one knew whether his blood would have power when he went into the cross. He died and he was put into the tomb. No one knew, but three days later, when he came up from the dead and there was life, everyone knew his blood had power because there was life. And now we know every single one of us who would place our faith in the blood of the lamb will receive that life and that power. And some of you need his power and his life. The resurrection shows us his blood has power. But the question is, are we going to put our faith in the blood of the lamb? And there was an action they had to do. It didn't matter that they were the Israelites. That wasn't going to save them. It didn't matter that they believed that Yahweh was real. It didn't matter even that they ate the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. It didn't even matter that they had sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand and a belt around their waist. Get this. It didn't even matter that they slaughtered the lamb. All that mattered was that they painted the lintel and the doorpost of their door and went inside and trusted in the blood of the lamb. That was the only thing that could save them. And here's why that matters for you. It does not matter that you have come to this church, you're watching a church service online, that's not going to save you. 
It doesn't matter that you serve in the children's ministry. It doesn't matter that you give some money to an offering. It doesn't matter that you try to change your ways and stop cussing and sleeping around. All that stuff will not save you. Only one thing can save you. When you paint the doorpost of your heart with the blood of the lamb and you trust in it. And you're going, well, what does that mean, Jason? How do I paint the doorpost of my heart? Well, there, there are two things I think it means depending on where you are spiritually. I want to talk to those of you who have already trusted in Christ for your salvation. Those of you who have already repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I give you my life and chosen to follow him in, in belief and baptism. If that's you, let me tell you what it means for you. It means you obey God even when you don't know why he's asking you to do what he's asking you to do. When they were painting the doorpost of their house, they had no clue why God was telling them to do it. All they could do was trust in God's command and in that blood and do what he said. I believe there are many of you who are believers in Jesus Christ and God is asking you to do something. And right now you are stalling because you want to know why. You want me to join a community group? God, why? I don't got time for that. Why? You want me to start mentoring a kid in the school? God, why? Why would you call me to do it? You want me to give something away, God? No, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. Why would you want me to do that, God? You want me to forgive that person when they've hurt me? God, why? And we think God's got to explain to us why he's doing what he's doing, but he does not. We don't need to know why. We just need to obey when he calls us. That's what it means to paint the doorpost of your heart with the blood of the lamb. It means you don't ask why. You don't need to know why. You say, yes, Lord. If you command me to do so, I trust you. Let me also say this one, maybe even more dangerous. There are some of you who have endured really, really hard things. Maybe here this morning, and you've endured some of the hardest moments of your life, death of a loved one, tragedy, a a failure, a loss, a brokenness, anything like that. And if you were being honest, you want God to tell you why. God, why? Why would you do this to me? Why would you let this happen? I thought you were good. I thought you loved me. I thought you were in control, God. Why? How could you let them die, God? How could you let me fail here, God? How could you not save me from this, God? How could you not vindicate me, God? Why? And the truth is, we don't need to know why. The word of God tells us God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. We may want to know why, but we don't need to know why. We need to say, oh God, I trust you. Remember, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know he's good. You've seen his salvation come to you. Sometimes faith means saying, God, I don't know why, but I still love you and I trust you. In a moment, I believe there are some of you who are going to need to repent. You're believers in Jesus, and you've let that why question gnaw you and make you angry at God and make you disobedient when he's calling you to do something. And you need to say today, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. I trust you. If you want me to go paint the doorpost of my house by saying, yes, Lord, even when I don't know why, then yes, Lord. There may be some of you who today, you need prayer because whatever situation you're going through, you're saying, I can't hold this on my own, but I'm not going to be angry with the Lord. I'm actually going to take it before the Lord. We're going to have pastors who are down front in a moment who are going to be willing and ready to pray over you. And today, you may need to take a faith step. Remember, faith is not what you say. It's not how you feel. It's what you do. And maybe you need to get up, slip out, come down and find one of these people and say, listen, I've I've been struggling with this. There's a weight I'm carrying. There's issue with me or someone that I love, and and I need you to pray for me. It's you giving it back to the Lord. Say, I'm not going to be angry with you, God. 
I'm not going to disobey you any longer. Lord, show your power. It's one of the ways you respond in faith. I believe some of you are going to need to do that in a moment. But before I open that up, that I know there are some of you right now. And you actually need to see the painting of the doorpost of your heart as a different symbol. What that was symbolizing when they painted the doorpost and the lintel of their house is that that house belonged to Yahweh. That everyone would know that house belonged to Yahweh. It was a public display. Any Egyptian would walk by and know that's an Israelite house. Any Israelite that would walk by would know that's another one of us. Their hope was that the destroyer angel would be coming through and see the blood and go, nope, that house belongs to Yahweh. I'm going to pass over. But it was a public display. The house belonged to Yahweh. Let me tell you, there are some of you, and you know God has been working on your heart. God has been showing you your sin. God has been showing you that you can only be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. But there must come a moment where you publicly portray the blood on the doorpost of your house. And it's no longer with slaughtering a lamb. The lamb of God has already been slaughtered. That is done. He said it's finished. We don't have to get physical blood and paint it anywhere. The Lord tells us the way we do it now is by a baptistry where somebody says, I'm going to go under the water and show that I'm dying with Christ. And then I come out of that water as a picture that I now belong to him. And I know there's power because the resurrection, the coming up shows that God can work inside of me. I got to be honest with you. I don't know why that's the symbol he's come up with. I can't explain to you why. But truth is, we don't need to know why. We just need to obey. And this is what the Lord tells us. I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, because some of you need to hear this. There is a fight. There's a war going on right now for you. Some of you today are here and you're listening to this and you're going, I need what you're talking about, Jason. I'm so sick of my life. I'm so sick of all that I've done. I'm so sick of how many people I've heard. I'm so sick of my past. I need new. You're, you're bitter about what's been, the broken state. Praise God if that's you. But it comes now to saying, I'm ready for God to move in me today. And there will come a moment, though your feet will feel like cement blocks, that you're going to have to put on your sandals, gird up your waist with your belt, get the staff in your hand, and move. And come on down front and to talk to one of the pastors and say, all right, today's the day. I need everybody to know this house belongs to Jesus Christ. I need everybody to know that he's my savior and he is my master and Lord. I'm ready to publicly paint the doorpost of my heart. And if baptism is the way that, that I do that, I don't need to know why. I'm in. I'm going to do it. And today can be the day that everything starts new. I, I, don't, I don't think I can understate enough. It is not enough for you to come to this church, say the right things, feel the right feelings. It is about what you do. And some of you need to respond today with action. I want to challenge you to do so. I want to invite you to stand, every single one of you in the room right now, if you're physically able to, stand up. Now I'm going to invite the prayer team to spread out around the front. And we're going to take some time for you to respond in faith. And this prayer team is right here to partner with you. Today is the day for you to say, I'm not just going to say I have faith with my lips. I'm going to show it with my actions. Whether that means I need to just say, God, I'm sorry for being angry with you. I need to take my burden before you. I have somebody pray over the situation that I'm in. Or I just bow down and ask, Lord, forgive me for being angry because I don't know why. Maybe that's it. Or maybe today's the day you're going, I'm, I'm, I'm not dragging my feet any longer. I'm ready. I'm ready to publicly declare this house belongs to Jesus Christ. I'm ready to be baptized. 
If that's you, we're ready to meet with you. And before you leave today, you can have that step of faith and be baptized. You just got to respond in faith. It's open. I invite you. Respond as you need to.